0: Welcome to the Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in the great unlearn. Uh, this is our second podcast together. but we've, we've added a wrinkle. What I think is quite a tremendously big wrinkle. And uh, I'm thrilled to have on Dr. Jerome Libba. Yes? Yes, sir. All right, great. On the podcast today. Now, he's anchored his life to the deep truth that his pain cultivates his faith, and his faith creates the possibility of a healthier future. Dr. Mm -hmm. Jerome is a functional neurologist at his private practice, Thrive NeuroHealth, where he specializes in a plethora of areas such as childhood development disorders, vestibular retaliation, movement disorders, neurochemistry. Concussion in brain injury rehabilitation. I actually have some friends that I'm going to send your way because they've, we uh, were friends with some former hockey players that, as you can imagine, have had some, some issues there. So we'll have to speak offline about that.
1: Yeah. Um, And if we have a a chance at some point, either on the podcast or another time, I'll tell you how I thoroughly embarrassed myself the first time I met Sidney Crosby because I'm from Africa and I have no idea who he is. Um, But that's a, a thoroughly entertaining story. <laughs> well, then we can't so, yeah,
0: bury that one until so fours. We're definitely getting back to that, Peyton. You remind kind of me if I forget. Crosby. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: my mentor worked with a lot of uh, high-profile NHL guys, and I got the the chance to be in that space. And they don't have a lot of ice in South Africa, so I didn't know who he was. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah he's yeah. a bit prolific yeah. around here. Yeah, apparently he's 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 done some things. <laughs> Well, listen, super, super sweet guy too.
0: Dr. Jerome developed his practice to specifically care for those on the margins who were abandoned, lost, or misunderstood in the healthcare arena. Like he once said, like he once was. Now he leads his practice with one of his greatest realizations that our minds, bodies, and souls are far more bent towards recovery than we ever imagined. And that's really one of the things that drew me to your work is the combination of mind, body, and soul. And that's something for me that has been newer. And uh, I'm excited to learn how that all gets put together for, for us individually and as a and as care. Now, in conjunction with Thrive Neural Health, he's integrated his learnings in neurology with the traditional Enneagram to create the brain, the brain-based enneagram. That's why you, Can were you ner- say that
2: five times. That's why you were Past- nervous.
0: So t- she took a <laughs> deep breath before we got on. She was nervous. I was gonna mess mess this up. That's a tough.
2: That's a tough little yes. statement. <laughs> tough
1: yeah. Now
0: listen, this is the very first book on neuroscience of the enneagram. If you're not yet familiar with the enneagram tool, is a system of personality typing that describes patterns in how we interpret the world and manage our emotions given our type. There are nine types. we'll get into all of that later on. Um, it helps us identify both our strengths and limitations as well as providing guidance on how we may develop our capacity beyond them. Dr. Jerome also does extensive work with couples. my wife Peyton is here, this lovely lady, she's joining us today. Now listen, this is going to be a little bit of relationship. It's going to be a little bit of Enneagram. It's going to be a little bit of Sidney Crosby. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. So anyway, without further
1: ado, Dr Jerome thank you so much for having me i appreciate it i it's it's always so fun to meet people in different spaces and and you know my history has been so convoluted i'm an i'm originally an immigrant kid from south africa by way of zaire my family came to the states on asylum status as refugees in the early 90s to you know the reasonable expectation of northeast tennessee from zaire it's a normal change for most people i think not at all but it's always fascinating to be able to get on the on a, on a podcast or a call with somebody and see how much life has happened over the last few decades. And for you to just share what you just shared and me think, 10 years ago, if somebody had said I was going to be on a podcast talking about the neuroscience of the Enneagram and relationships and some guy named Sidney Crosby, I would have been very confused. So it's really fascinating to see how the world uh, kind of works and where things go. So I appreciate you having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure.
0: Yeah. And as we we were talking offline, like, we'll just kind of let, we're going to give a little history, a little bit of your history. We're going to talk Enneagram, obviously. And, and, oh, I'm the quote unquote host, like obviously Peyton, anything that sparks your interest fire away. And, um, like talk to us a little bit about how, you know, you get into the Enneagram eventually, but your background was in neurology and, I mean, when we were talking last week, there was a number of things that you were doing that I I had a hard time spelling. So can you give us a little (laughs) bit of like
1: what your uh, call was to those things and then how it maybe changed? Yeah. You know, um, the funny thing is I always tell everybody I only only became a doctor because I couldn't find a good one. Yeah. I was a patient. I've been a patient for, for 22 years. My undergrad is actually in digital animation, special effects production. And I used to do music full time with my brothers. So, you know, when you go to the high school guidance counselor and they go, okay, here's your career track. They don't go digital animation, film, music, and neuroscience, right? It's not, it's not the no. normal segues. It's not the normal segues. Um, but I started having really, really intense migraines at 17, a couple of years. My dad passed when I was a freshman in high school, 14. And through a lot, I mean, nine specialists, 21, uh, 21 specialists over nine years, over a hundred grand as a newly married couple uh to get a diagnosis for you know a, a neurological issue that once we had the name of it no one knew what to do with it other than a pretty intense surgery and a pretty aggressive uh you know pain medication regimen um and my tolerance for medication is really really high which is great when you want to have some whiskey or wine cuz i can have eight shots of espresso and not feel it which is probably not great for my adrenals but <laughs> there. It helps when you have one, uh, you want to have a little you know a little wine or 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 something else. But the problem is when you're in intense pain and, and you just really process pain medication really well, it leaves you with a pretty short list of things that are pretty intense. Um, and the surgery for I have what's called a Chiari malformation as well as some compression on all four sides of my brainstem due to some brain damage. I was run over by a car when I was eight. Had two concussions when I was in high school and run over by a car on foot. Um, had two concussions in high school and hit by two drunk drivers by the time I was 21. So my body and my head and my brain had been through some things. And long story short, started averaging at 17. Uh, by the time I got to 21, 22, I was averaging 100 full-blown migraines per calendar year and about 200 to 225 headaches outside of those migraines. So I'd averaged about two to three weeks without a headache during a calendar year. Um, and when we got the diagnosis, what ended up happening was the clinicians that we saw were incredible people. But at the end of the day, they were like, we have the option to give you a pretty aggressive brain and spine surgery at the same time, called the decompression surgery, where you can pretty heavily medicate you because your tolerance is super high. And when both of those didn't really feel like viable options as a 26 year old, you start looking at all these other places. And honestly, what ended up happening, Gal, is I was like, I feel like there's so much that the traditional community offers in terms of understanding and clinical complexity, but not really in wellness and rehab Mm and alternative kind of wholeness. And then the alternative community is super good at rehab and wellness, but they don't really like taking on complex cases. Mm -hmm. So what happens to the person like me who gets into the medical purgatory of being pinballed between everybody who doesn't want to treat you? Because you want to get better and the alternative community doesn't really take complex. And then you're really complex and somebody understands you, but they don't really have any way to do that without really introducing some pretty invasive or pretty aggressive techniques. So I ended up going to school and getting a doctorate in chiropractic as my primary degree. And then after that, got a lot of, or during the chiropractic and afterwards, got a lot of postgraduate work in neurology, ended up getting board certified. I'm one of 13 people in Georgia the only person in in Atlanta inside the perimeter that's board certified in functional neurology, it's kind of like being a personal trainer for the brain. It's like if you take a chiropractor, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, a neurologist, and then you put them into a blender, that's kind of what we do as functional neurology. It's like a personal trainer. And then I ended up getting tons of other kind of extra training and fellowships in childhood neurological developmental disorders, traumatic brain injury, vestibular rehabilitation, concussion movement disorder, all sorts of different things. Cause really what it turned out was I'm just good at sitting in a class for an extended period of time. <laughs> unlike my twin brother, who's not, he's like, he, he wouldn't last in a classroom. So I took that and ran with it. But what it really means is I just wanted to get into a situation, honestly, where I would minimize the number of times where I looked at somebody and said, I don't know what's going on and I don't know what to do because I have a lot of experience with that over the last 20, de- 20 years, two decades. Uh, so I just, became a doctor because I couldn't find one that knew how to work with me in conjunction and partner with the goals that I had of, of not pursuing either drugs or surgery or alternative approaches that loved the rehab, but didn't love the complexity.
0: Well, that's quite a path. And it's, uh, I do love the stories that the, the, this hardship, which is maybe a bit of an understatement of what you were enduring, created this path towards learning, understanding to heal yourself. And now you've been able to bring that medicine to, to that you know, that Venn diagram that's not being treated. So right. that's, that's pretty special. How long have you been kind of in practice?
1: So I was licensed in 2014. That's when I officially got licensed, but I was fortunate enough to mentor with a guy who created the field of functional neurology, the one who originally worked with Sidney Crosby. Um, so I've been in this world for about 11 years, but in license and private practice for the last five years.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask like, you must be really good at school because that's a lot of freaking work.
1: But is yeah. that it?
0: You like it? That's your kind of type is you'll, you can pull out information and sit and consume and.
1: Well, interestingly enough, <sighs> uh, I think this is where we'll, we'll get into the conversation of motivation versus natural uh, inclination. I think if you're motivated by something, you, you're willing to go through a lot of hell for it. Um, my, when we talk about Enneagram spaces, my lowest number, most people actually think I'm a five, which is the researcher and the investigator. It's what most people think of when they think of science, but five is actually my lowest number. Interesting. Yeah. So sitting with data, uh, and sitting with a lot of information, is actually pretty fatiguing for me. Just some means to an end. I was more willing to deal with the challenge because I'm doing close to 530 credits in five years. I mean, if you do the math, it's, that's a lot of school in five years. I went year round um, and nights and weekends in conjunction with a full doctorate at the same time. Uh, and it wasn't really that I felt comfortable with that. It was just, it was a means to an end for me.
0: You're inspired. I like to say that's like just true inspiration. Like I'm, I'm yeah. getting there like keep sending, right. Keep sending me the information.
1: Now, how did you, how did you tip into the Enneagram space? So, man, I had a really good friend of mine, um, who I will both always name and more as a curse than anything, because he's he's affected my life so deeply in, <laughs> in terms of burying me in this world. Um, but it's uh, I say it with love, but it's also partially a curse. His name is Sean Champ Smith, and he lives in Spain. He's an incredible, beautiful person. Um, but while I was doing the doctorate, <laughs> he calls me. And he goes, I, I, I don't know what it is about this, but I feel like you need it. And he's like proselytizing. on it. And You got to realize I'm a recovering charismatic, like I grew up in charismatic Pentecostal worlds, So anytime <laughs> somebody calls to share something with me and they're super excited, I get triggered a bit. <laughs> so, like, so I said, I hear you, but you understand I'm commuting 10 hours round trip across Atlanta. I'm doing one hour to one hour and 15 minutes one way every day. At the same time as doing 115 to 120 credits per calendar year, I was like, when I don't have time, I mean, this is not even including the experience as a patient. I said, I don't have the time. He goes, well, what if I get you an audio book and you listen to it while you drive?" And I said, that's when I listen to my own notes that I've recorded from class. And he goes, give me one week. Give me one week and listen to this. It's a nine-hour recording. And I listened to the recording, man, and as soon as I heard it, it was just serendipitous that it was at the right time that I was also in a neurochemistry fellowship that I was studying the brain chemistry of what happens in different real estates. And as I'm, I'm like, this sounds a lot like basic brain function. What ended up happening was I went and looked up, well, what's the science behind the Enneagram? Is there any kind of information that's empirical? And it turned out there was nothing. There's no information on the Enneagram that was science-based and that was 10 years ago. And it started me on this journey of where it felt like it really connected in a really easy, really tangible way to the way that the brain works based on contemporary science. But nobody had connected those dots. I remember the first time sitting down and looking through it and going, this is going to ruin me for the next 50 years. I'm just going to study this forever. (laughs) So, and that's what's happened out of the last 10 years. I haven't gone a day without thinking about this nonsense, but it's, it's been great.
0: Well, what, what are the origins? I don't know the origins of the Enneagram. So how did it come to our yeah, existence?
1: The interesting thing is with the Enneagram, most people in contemporary language around the Enneagram, because there's, there's two major arcs of the Enneagram. There's the old school Enneagram that's really historical. And then the new Enneagram, which is the Enneagram of personality. And the Enneagram of personality that's got these nine numbers, kind of like the Myers-Briggs has 16 types. The new Myers-Briggs, is actually only about 50 years old. It was brought into the forefront in 1969 by a Bolivian named Oscar Chaza, when he ended up connecting with one of his students, um, Claudio Naranjo, which was in Berkeley in California. And all these academics and intellectual circles started sharing this by word of mouth. And it was like this whole fight club thing about like personality and profile and psychology and developmental psychology. But what ended up happening is a couple of the people in this closed group said, I think we should publish some work on this. And a lady named Helen Palmer published a book, and then Richard Rohr published a book, and then the floodgates opened. And so, when you talk about the Enneagram, you have to talk about the Enneagram in terms of the last 50 years, especially with contemporary culture and contemporary language around, you know, what number are you? Which is a common question in the Enneagram, which we'll debunk a bit because it's actually not true and it's not neuroscientifically true. You can't be a number. You can lead or be high or efficient in a number, but that's kind of like being a whole human and saying, well, what limb do you have? Well, I have four or limbs, hopefully. I've worked with a lot of combat injured veterans. It doesn't always tend to be the case, but we don't talk about ourselves in a lived experience by hand and foot. We talk about our bodies, right? Enneagram's the same thing. It's a collective. But the Enneagram actually, there's some argument and some history that's shown that it's as much as three or four thousand years old in Egyptian culture. Um, and there's actually things that have shown up uh, even up to third, fourth, fifth century um, Catholic church uh, language and, and documents. So, The Enneagram as a kind of a concept for how you connect with the world from an engagement standpoint uh, has existed as long as what's called the Desert Fathers and Mothers, which is old school, like Kabbalah, old school Sufi, old school uh, Christian uh, Desert Fathers and Mothers. So it's a pretty old lineage. It's arguably the oldest language around identity and and personality, but it didn't become a personality typology until late 60s, early 70s. Awesome. And I...
2: I only started hearing about it the past I don't know, three years, right?
0: Yeah, I feel like mine was in the last three years. And, and honestly, the first two, three times they either did the test or someone asked me that was really
1: into it. I'm like, oh, I'll go do it. And I did it. I was like, eh, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. And that's normally the, yeah, normally the case. And it, then it feels super reductive sometimes. And then I did it again. And <laughs> I got it. <laughs>
0: oh, this, you know, the thing that, Made the most sense to me, and th- that that test that I had done, I had identified as a three. And so, yeah. one of the things I had read so the achiever, and um, one of the things I had read talked about the core wound, childhood wound, and how the achiever processes that and and goes, where our that core wound is 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 what I'm led to believe is that. As a child, we're not lovable because we're always told to do something other than what our natural inclination is. Yeah. So the Achiever goes out and figures out what he's supposed to do. Allegedly to get love. And so it's all kind of this doing well in school and sports and, and doing all these things. And then one day, hopefully he wakes up it's like, what do I really want? Because I've been living other people, what I think actually, it's not even other people's expectations. It's what I think other people want from me so that I can get their love. And it was like, I read that and I was like, ah, yeah, I had that, that moment a couple of years ago that I was not living my life. I had done a lot of things I wanted to do, but by and large, I had no idea who I was and what I wanted.
1: Right. Yeah, and this is this is the amazing thing. I think one of the things that a lot of folks have gravitated towards the Enneagram when it's used in really healthy ways, uh, as we all know, it's uh, any tool is is uh, basically as useful as the practitioner. You know, it just depends on how you how you utilize it. But I think one of the things that has really kind of endeared folks to the Enneagram is the biggest difference with it when somebody thinks and I'm pretty well studied on a lot of different ones from strength finders to disc to Myers-Briggs to Berkman to there's so many different ways of figuring out are you an extroverted otter or an introverted you know hamster There's like there's so many different ways to figure out what version of a human you are right Um, and I say that in like because some of the times you're like I don't know if I'm an animal or a human or a four letter word like my twin brother always answers when somebody asks him what his Myers-Briggs is he says it's an STFU (laughs) Cause he's like, I I don't, I don't want to answer that question. Right. So, (laughs) um, but he's also pretty funny about it when he's lighthearted. But the thing that I like about the Enneagram in comparison to a lot of the other tests or the other assessments is it's really designed to help you understand why you are the way you are, not what you do, what's effectively the best, you know, um, objective goal for a job or the best profession to go for the best way to interact with a colleague. It's not, Transactional. It's not only relational, but it's heavy duty introspective work about, okay, what made you the way that you are? What motivates you? What inspires you? What causes you to get up and go, this is what I'm moving towards and this is what I'm moving away from, from a really deep origin space issue, so that you're not dealing with such superficial conversations like, I think maybe I'd just do better as a driver. You know, it's, I think that ends up being a bit too reductive. And the goal with the work that I was doing was to go, If we connect this with the brain science, make it really practical, then we could actually step back and go, you're not only really efficient in a three, for instance, but let's have a conversation about how you can functionally interact with all of these other numbers as if there were nine members of the same band. You might have a lead vocalist, but that doesn't mean eight other members of the band just disappear. They can function in a certain way and the better cohesion for a larger group of people in either a team setting or a band setting or whatever the analogy may be that you use, there's never really ever effectively one solo artist ever, right? Even a solo artist has a sound engineer. Even a solo artist has somebody who sets up their gear, right? So understanding not only why we do what we do, but what is the interaction in all of those spaces that opens us up to really much more practice of becoming whole and healthy. Um, Because I think there's no shortage of these tests constantly reminding us where we're broken. Um, and I just don't think that that's helpful language, not not based on contemporary psychology. Yeah, I'd love to
0: get into like the well before we get, get really get into, into it, it. Like, I <laughs> I, I want to get into like how you you know more practically, like how you took what you learned early on about the Enneagram and layered your work over mm-hmm. it, and then kind of brought that you know to the, the greater good.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I think that the simplest. The simplest way that it ended up happening is, and honestly, this is sometimes just dumb luck, the way these things work out, you know. Um, But the way the brain is set up is there's three primary areas of the brain, your central nervous system. You have a left brain, a right brain, and your brainstem that collectively make up your central nervous system. And then in the Enneagram, there are three intelligence centers, head, heart, and gut. And the human experience is a mind, body, and a soul. You know, if you look at every major faith tradition, regardless of what faith you have, it's very Trinitarian in nature. There tends to be a, a reconciling, restraining, and affirming force involved, right? Depending on whether it's a masculine, feminine, or combined kind of kind of energy that's involved. Even in the Trinity, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which is actually the divine feminine. So in almost everything that you look at neuroscientifically, from an Enneagram standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, there tends to be three forces working together to create a whole. The original guy who brought the Enneagram back into, like, contemporary language was an Armenian mystic, mystic named um, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, G.I. Gurdjieff. And he actually introduced what was called fourth way, which is when you connect these three things of mind, body, and soul, and they coalesce, and they collectively work together, you get a fourth kind of new manifestation. So what ended up happening was when I got introduced to the Enneagram, I was already really inundated into how the brain works in terms of interactions between these three major areas. And the Enneagram lays directly on top of that. It's it's the exact same thing. So my argument was instead of looking at it and saying you are a number, looking at it and saying the brain works off of efficiency models. It's designed to do whatever is going to give you the highest chance of survival. So based on your lifetime of lived experiences, you became really, really good at functioning in a three space. You also became really good at functioning at an eight and a seven collectively, which is really important to understand when you look at being healthy. Because if you only look at the three, you don't look at them in relationship to the eight and the seven together, you're going to miss a huge opportunity to understand how you're wired. So the goal for the whole identity and brain-based Enneagram was to take all nine numbers and the entire symbol of the Enneagram because it looks like like two pentagrams kind of intersected Mm -hmm. with each other. It's kind of wonky. But you actually take the entire symbol and you lay it directly over brain anatomy, and each of the numbers actually correlate with a part of the brain. So it's a it's a, a little bit confusing if somebody's never heard it before. But the really simple way of of understanding it is if you look at whole brain function, and you look at the whole enneagram, they're syn they're synonymous for each other. It's not even a different language; it's the same language, different dialect. So they they explain the same thing. So if somebody comes to me and says, "I'm high in this number, where does that live in the brain, and how do I exercise it in a healthy way?" do I make sure that I'm, you know, the most proficient that I can be? Sometimes it's active restraint because somebody's really, really wildly active in it, and they got to look at how to rein it in. Like I know for you and your history, and a little bit of what I know, you're, you're probably more inclined to a gas pedal, right? Than the nature of the way that, right? So <laughs> yes, yes right. I don't, I don't need, I don't oh, need to show up and go, hi, Cal, it's nice to meet you. Let's get you motivated, right? It's like, it's like I got an idea. Maybe we figure out a way to go. How do we effectively do? restraint exercises like, like I, you know it's it's a it's like active resistance training is probably a better therapy for you than it would be for somebody who's never gotten out of bed and and gone and and open to business right so it's it's understanding some of those pieces and combining kind of health language and exercise language to to make it a little bit more practical
0: so i love i love i love that you even said gas pedal too because my my old trading partner not uh, the will hobart he, uh, he used to say that he would have the hands on the steering wheel and just be steering this sh- and I would just gas pedal the whole way and it was just his job to steer us because I didn't yeah. have a break and yeah. it's definitely manifested in a lot of ways that have been challenging. And I think now that I've come into a place where I understand myself better, one of the questions I continue to ask myself is, can I just be with it? Do I have to go do this or can I just allow this to unfold in front of me and just follow what feels really good? And so I think that's the active restraint that feels so good to me now. And before I was operating at such a high level of adrenaline and as you would probably attest, you can can never satiate that. It's, It's a different energy than just being inspired and doing
1: the work. Yeah, and you know, and this is sometimes when you're looking at the Enneagram and com- connecting it with brain science, one of the things that I'm trying to make, it super simple because I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a baby doing seven weeks, so yes. I want to be able to have a conversation with my four-year-old that I don't need to go, hey, here's a really fancy 17-syllable Latin word for clinical terminology, and he goes, what? I want to be able to go, hey, bro, you're hitting the gas a bit, I need, yeah. I need you to pump the brakes, or I need you to just hold for a second. Is you can sum up the entire lived experience of a human being in a Goldilocks statement of too much, too little, just right, or gas break and cruise and its relative relationships. Like for instance, if you look at Myers-Briggs and somebody's massively extroverted, one of the healthiest things that an extroverted person can do is actively and intentionally practice, practice introversion because they're so addicted to extroversion, right? So if somebody like you is addicted to a gas pedal and somebody says, hey man, this isn't like a clinical diagnosis. This isn't saying that you're broken. It's saying you're predisposed to adrenaline and to your heart rate going up that it's going to feel weird for you to slow down. So when you go out and you're like, I think what I've got to do is get my body body physically more fit by increasing my cardio and my heart rate and me going, it's actually going to feed into your addiction for a sensory experience to be so stimulated that what would actually be really healthy for your mental and emotional state is to do something like, I don't know, mindfulness and a body scan where you have to sit still for long enough that you start freaking the fool out three minutes into it because that's an actual workout. It's not a workout for you to go and do CrossFit for an hour. You love that. You get done with it and you're juiced. You do a three minute exercise that makes you want to get out of your own skin. That's probably a more effective workout because it's hard. And for somebody who's a gas pedal to sit still and go, And everybody who's a gas pedal is already freaking out because I took five seconds to explain that. Yes! Yes! <laughs> I love it. So you can, you can distill the whole thing to every single topic, whether it's high level, PhD level, or it's basic level. Okay, I need a function in the next six minutes. You can literally look at everything and say it's a relative relationship with gas, cruise, and brake and also keep funneling it into healthy, positive, opportunity, solution-oriented language, rather than saying, here's the 17 ways you suck as a human, yeah. right? We're all really good at self-deprecation. Yeah. And if we're not, it's because we're in denial and we haven't dealt with our own self-deprecation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having healthy language that's solution-oriented is a big difference with my clinic because everybody who comes into me, I specialize in complex, unresolved cases. Mm-hmm. Nobody's coming into me needs to be reminded that they're dealing with some difficult stuff right and i think these these opportunities with like enneagram and personality and identity the more that we're like oh man i'm really gifted and it's a really amazing talent that i have to hit the gas and that's great when i want to start a company or i want to be a visionary or i want to start this idea but when's the last time i slowed down long enough to be present with my spouse to look them in the eye for 4 seconds straight right so understanding that it's a gift but it can also be a curse right it's just that 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 recognition of of what that relationship with gas, cruise, and break is.
0: That's, I mean, so resonates with that as I've kind of come into this other space in the last couple of years. That's one of the things that changed significantly for me was my training. I chilled the fuck out. And I mean, we've, we've been up here in, in Idaho for, I've probably been for three weeks. I've exercised once but I have meditated the shit out of this place and I am so grounded, Yeah, you know, when I get excited for something like this and, and like, I'm all in, but generally walking around here, like I, I've just been in a different state be- because I, I guess it's been understanding how to be discerning with the gas, the brake and the cruise. And so that is you know, so interesting. Like we had uh, Peyton and I, had a what a misunderstanding, that's for sure. We had um, some stress recently, and it was almost entirely caused because I had become so single-mindedly focused on something that it was it was like consuming like how the thing was going to play out, and we had all these different iterations, and in doing that, I was blocking everything else out. Particularly, how she felt about the thing that, in this particular case had a financial component. And uh, I had just dismissed that because it, I was a foot on the gas. and yeah, it kind of blew up in my face. and fortunately, I had the wherewithal to take a deep breath, not engage in any kind of argument try to prove that I wasn't wrong. Uh, And I reached out to three of my best friends and was like, this is what just happened. And I know I wasn't right, but I just don't know exactly what happened. And they're like, dude, whatever, whatever happened, the fact that you just reached out to us (laughs) is everything. Like, you know, like not to lock horns right now because you're not thinking. And you reached and it was, it was amazing. Like it created enough space mm-hmm. for me to check myself and to understand what Peyton may be feeling, you know, and then to be able to go with her, go to her with that and say, look, hand up. I, I, I was wrong. I was wrong
2: well, enough to even def- diffuse the situation so that we could actually have a conversation about it.
0: I went to meet Peyton after I'd had this great kind of uh, piece of advice from all three of my these close brothers I laid down. Everything as like, Hey, I'm sorry. This is, and she's just like, ah, uh-uh. you, I ain't letting basically like, don't think that that's enough. And she like, kind of let me have it. And it was, I had to sit with that.
2: I needed I had, a minute.
0: Yeah. And I needed to be okay with it not being resolved in the way that I thought it was going to be resolved. When I went down there with hat in hand and said, I, I messed up. Yeah. And it was a great, I was grateful that she did that because it, it, it was just another reminder. Like, listen, dude, like you get into this state where you lose perspective on what's going on. Yeah. You're going to have a hard time.
2: Well, and also for me, cause I have, uh, a history of dismissing my feelings, and then, oh, for sure. and then just being, oh, it's okay, it's fine. I shouldn't have done this, or I should have, you know, all the things. And I was like, Mm-mm.
1: she went the when other I'm way. Feeling
2: yeah. is what I'm. She feeling. dismissed my feelings, <laughs> and I, was which like, is
1: a profound amount of growth for somebody who's high in A two energy. <laughs> Come on, girl, yeah, it. Yeah, it's, you know, to, to make it practical for what you guys are talking about and, and what you shared in that story, because I think it's brilliant, um, is, you know, the, for somebody and, and to, to put it into language that makes sense for somebody who's never heard of this before. Okay. Cal is highest in an 8, 3, and a 7, which is wild because 8, 3, and 7 are all known as an assertive stance. They're the driver. All three of those are the gas pedal. So not only are it. It's not my fault, three, guys. It's not. It's no it's no fault. It's a gift. Just try to if live with them. If it's here's the thing, you lever you can leverage a gift or it can become something that will run roughshod, right? Yep. It's like somebody who can sing really, really powerful vocals. Sometimes you don't. You know, I, I love Pavarotti. He does not need to sing a bedtime Ava Maria at full volume for bedtime stories, right? the the best the best definition of meekness is exercising power with restraint so like the superpower of somebody who's high in eight three and seven is meekness it's not often practiced like oh no i could totally just absolutely just set this entire thing on fire Whereas eight three seven energy is like explosive it's it's the fireworks it's the sensationalism it's the oh my god i've got this idea but i actually have 17 but what we're gonna have to do through is very quickly work through all 17 <laughs> the same time, right? so somebody who's high in eight three and seven sounds like they're speaking in tongues because you're telling you all the ideas at the same time and you're like breaks." <laughs> so but by comparison peyton is high in two seven and nine so you guys have some correlation with seven energy being really enthusiastic and really joyful Like it's easy to be around seven energy and be like, oh, this is really vibrant. It's really bright. But she's bookended by a two and a nine. And a two is somebody who's very, very compassionate, very, very interested in serving and taking care of. It's a natural gift of nurturing. And the nine is the natural gift of rest, right? So when somebody like Cal comes in and goes, I just had this epiphany about how I feel emotionally and how it's affecting you emotionally. And Peyton's like, I've literally had that thought 17 times every day for the last four years. I'm <laughs> glad you've arrived. <laughs> but, that's, yes! but it doesn't mean that we've discussed it. It means, <laughs> you've, become, it means you've become aware of it. Right? So the revelation just a language
2: of, to things I've felt over the past. <laughs> right. years. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's, it's one of those moments where it to give you a kind of a physical visual experience as somebody who's high in a eight, three, seven, who recognizes that they may have found an opportunity for improvement. (laughs) It's like somebody who's going 130 miles an hour and they just did a loop around their own interstate and passed the billboard that's been there for years and gone, oh my God, did you see that? I did that. And then they're still at 130 miles an hour. So they've passed the billboard and the other person they're in relationship with has been standing underneath the billboard because they erected it. They put it up. And so it's one of those things where somebody who's really high in eight, three, seven as a driver goes, man, I want to be, especially if you're high in three and seven, you want to celebrate seven energy, the success of discovering that emotional intelligence and being like, can we really just be excited? But what you've done is just walked into a conversation with your own revelation, but you've just walked into a conversation of acknowledging someone else's pain point. And that's really hard for somebody in a seven space to sit with. But for somebody who's in a two like Peyton, uh, the twos are allergic to making it about them, even though that's exactly what they desire. They want for somebody to ground them and center them. But it's it's it almost feels it definitely feels inappropriate. So why the story is entertaining is um, both my twin brother and my older brother are very high in seven, eight energy, which is two of your top three. Um, Cal, so I'm super familiar with this space. <laughs> um, and it's 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 been they're so energetic, but it's one of those things where you go, um, I know that this is gonna be really hard, but this is not a three minute conversation. I need you to just pack a lunch, sit down, and do a lot more listening than talking. And that's really, really hard when you're used to being the driving force and the the driver, you know. So yeah, it's a great example of an interaction between people who are wired the way that you guys are wired. It's pretty
2: cool. And so I would love to just pause for a second and remind the listeners that we did the test um, yesterday and Dr. Jerome is working with us for the first time now.
1: Yeah, So So, we're doing this in real time. In real time. (laughs) Yeah, he gave
2: us the (laughs) opportunity. So this is all new. Yeah, he gave
0: us the option to discuss it beforehand and then come on. And I think he he understood that this would be way more fun. (laughs) Yeah,
2: But Um, even you just saying that about the sign I'm like, yeah, yeah. I've, that resonated so deeply with me because we've even having that conversation. Like, how have you not seen me for in our twenty years of marriage? Like, yeah, and it's a relative to not relationship, take that personally. Speed. Yeah,
1: yeah, because for you, you've been you've been sitting, cemented, grounded in that experience at a speed that allows you to fully absorb the experience because you've built that experience block by block. But if Cal is driving and he's going at that speed, he's passing that same object, but at a speed that makes it a blur. So it's one of those things that it it can also vary. This is one of the interesting things in relationship dynamics, because I've been married 15 years and with my wife, 17, and we've known each other for 24. So we've got a lot of history, even though we're young, because I'm only 37. Um... But the reality is, is the science has shown you can have two people have the exact same physical experience with two completely different encounters. Both of them could pass, a, you know, a polygraph or a lie detector test, completely describe the situation, and it'd be completely different. But only one event transpired. So it's those opportunities to go. How is it remotely possible that I could be standing here with such an obvious indication? Well, if you think about it from a relative relationship with speed. If Cal's going 150 miles an hour and he's passing that billboard, it's very understandable for him not to recognize the detail of what you're experiencing. So then the compromise, or like you guys talk about the collaboration, moves into a space of going, okay, how do I get him to recognize my conversation at his speed? Or how do I get him to slow down to match my speed? And that's where equilibrium comes in a lot more. Because sometimes you have to have somebody who's inclined to be a brake pedal or a cruise control. To either accelerate or decelerate in relationship to their, their partner. And for somebody who's really high in, in gas pedal like Cal, it's a safe bet that not only for your own health, but for the health of the people around you, like you're talking about, figuring out ways to slow down relative to your own needs and the needs of the people around you, is almost undeniably going to benefit you and everybody around you because you're so biased towards hitting the gas, which again is not a negative. It's just relative to your lived experience It said, I'll give you an, ex- if I, can I get, give you guys a couple of words that might make it helpful for you and for your listeners to kind of yeah, contextualize please. this? Is that cool? Okay. So one of the things, if anybody hears this and they either know the Enneagram or they're getting into the Enneagram, first and foremost, the thing I encourage you to do is do not type yourself. Do not just identify a type. Okay. Because like I said, that's like being a human being and saying my entire lived experience is based on my right arm. To function as a human being, you're a collective whole system. That's like the old science of saying you're a right brain person versus a left brain person. Well, if that's the case, what happened to the rest of your brain? <laughs> it is, it's, you're a whole person. You might be efficient in something. So one of the ways to look at when you take a test like the Ready, it's one of the ones I recommend, is look at it as a diagnostic, not a diagnosis, okay? Everybody that you go to is a clinician who does a lab value, or does blood work, or does a, a, you know an advanced imaging. That's just information that's designed for somebody who's got content expertise to interpret. It's very, very rare that you get a lab value and one value is 100% a bullseye for a diagnosis. That's super rare. You got to combine multiple aspects. So when you take something like the Enneagram, and, and you guys are both good examples because you've got some really high numbers, is to look at it based on motivations. And based on efficiencies, will help a lot more than going, I am a number. Because when you make a statement that says, I am, you're making a base statement that's very different than I experience or I have. I'll give you myself as an example I am not a migraine, okay? (laughs) I am not depressed. I have had two suicide attempts in my history. I've wrestled with anxiety and depression significantly. And I've had 22 years of history with migraines. But for a health mental emotional physical health care standpoint it's much more helpful for me to say I experience a high frequency of migraines that I don't have migraines every day not am. I'm not a migraine. this is why one of the healthy language shifts has been from saying that is a homeless person to so that's a person experiencing homelessness right because as soon as you put them in a home they're no longer homeless so it can't be a state of identity it's a state of relative experience right so and to put that in context for instance with Peyton Two of Peyton's highest numbers are a two and a seven. A two is the natural human capacity for nurturing. They're motivated by appreciation. It's like, I want to make you feel loved and I want to feel loved in doing that. I want to appreciate you. Appreciation by definition is to increase in value. So when Peyton is in space with another human being, they will feel more valuable as a result of just being in the same space with her. her. That's her desire to do that. If you add in the seven, It's also saying, I'm going to be enthusiastic while I do that. I'm going to be energized. I'm going to inspire you. I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to have that degree of experience that says, how can I love you enthusiastically? Or how can I enthusiastically love you, right? Those sort of things go hand in hand. It doesn't mean they're one or the other. It's a combination of those two. They kind of sing a duet in almost everything that you do, right? Does that make sense?
2: And I love that you said that our, our dear friend, Marilee, who's allowed us to use her home today, was, she's also a doctor and that was her, um, the sentiment that she shared with us before coming on today was, um, her frustration with people identifying as I am a two or I am a, and, and singling in on that. And and sometimes even like, um, developing that, a a deeper identity with pride and things like that, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to seeing the big picture and maybe what's maybe most presenting or um, more relative to your experiences. So I'm yeah. so appreciative that you brought that up because that was her one piece of um, advice that she shared with us last night. So thank you.
1: I love that And one. She's got a beautiful name, Mary Lewis. I know. Um, and also you can even see, it's really interesting. Each person, in terms of their efficiency, will use particular adjectives or words or verbs in their language. And you said, I'm so appreciative. I right? stepped <laughs> on that too. Right? You did? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, a two, is, a two is naturally motivated by appreciation. Again, not a negative because you got to look, most of the time, when we've been given information and insight into ourselves, it's so quickly fast tracked to being associated with shame and insufficiency that we're not used to getting information and going, wow, that's powerful, or wow, that's a gift, or wow, that's a skill that I can leverage in a healthy way if I understand how many resources I have and to, to what degree I can do that. If somebody gave us our identity as a, as a resource and we budgeted it effectively, we wouldn't go, oh God, I've got, got 20 grand in my savings. account." Damn. No, it's like, i got 20 grand in my savings account. What should I do with that, right? But we find out I'm naturally gifted at appreciation. But does that mean that I'm always needing? Right, like we always end up moving into these spaces of shame. And one of the goals of my work is to go, if somebody walks into my clinic and they're really, really dealing with significant issues, I need to find out how to resource them to become healthier, not how to recognize just simply where things are difficult, right? But to connect the dot for you for just a second, um, with what I was saying there is, one of the things that can be really interesting that doesn't happen a lot in the Enneagram world is to not only have a conversation around what you're most efficient at, And what you kind of move towards, but where you're least efficient and when you move away. So, if you look at the whole spectrum of the Enneagram, you can put it as a pursuit and avoidance strategies. And you can also do those as addiction and avoidance strategies. So, for instance, for Peyton, you're really naturally inclined to both be appreciated, to nurture people, to be enthusiastic, to be a peacemaker, to negate conflict, to find rest, and to do it really well so that you feel successful and having accomplished all four of those things if you could wake up every day and make people feel rested and taken care of and also do it in a way that brings a smile to people's face that will feel like a win every day of the week for you that language that i just used is combining two seven nine and three energy collectively because those are your four highest numbers right but what you're allergic to is if somebody especially in an unhealthy way introduced an eight six or a one right or let's especially just Okay. It's, uh, and there's a lot of numbers that are pretty close together at the bottom. Okay But especially a one, A one is known as a reformer, which is really then sometimes unhealth, in an unhealthy way is known as a perfectionist. So if somebody sat down in an aggressive way and told you that your relationship was dependent on how well you did things for them and went through all of the checklists of where you missed it and how you didn't execute effectively, that would be a really quick trigger. You know, like, I'm not here for that. I'm not here for the aggression. I'm not here for the conflict. I'm not here for the challenge. I'm not here for you holding our relationship ransom in terms of your loyalty. So it's like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather be in a space where I can do something that makes me feel like I can connect relationally and we can have a good time. But at the end of it, we can rest well. It's like, I'm willing to bet the difference in the type of vacation that you guys take. Like, when you're on a vacation, you'd be profoundly excited to find somewhere where you can just shut down and shut off. And then Kyle is like, I have seventy-four things for this, right?
2: As it turns out, actually, I guess, is a
1: switch, I,
0: no, no. Well, a little bit. You're a little, a little more bit. adventuresome, but no. He Doc, goes, when I go on vacation, I've, I chill out. Do you switch off? I do. For him, awesome. he
2: does. And usually, if you're not with me, then I go on adventures. Yeah. Because sometimes old, it's like old I version. Old things, version. Now I'm now I'm more stuff, attuned to that. And we have the kids, and what if they're like. It's it's a whole
0: to do for me with the, uh, this and the, that. I'd rather just chill and right on. I, I enjoy More my. I,
2: I enjoy
1: my alone time. I think that's where that comes from. And I don't this know. Is, we
2: can dive in that. Yeah, but.
1: and this is where you know this is why I always tell everybody, and this is even where I love doing it with you guys live because, like we mentioned before the call, I, I think one of the things that um a lot of people who do either personality work, or typology, or identity, or even clinical work they don't have the flexibility to allow for the person they're sitting with to give them really good feedback like a case history because I can only know so much from an outside perspective that as I update my information, then I, of course, correct based on as the picture gets more clear um, versus going, I'm the content expert and this is the way it is because we're not fixed like that. There's a lot of variability. So specifically when I talk about Enneagram language and to to your friend's point that you mentioned from last night, what happens a lot of times with the enneagram or any other identity, or even in relationships, because you guys have been married for more than twenty years, right, or you've been yeah. together more than yeah. 20, years, twenty years, is somebody will tell you that this is just the way you are, or this is just that type, or this is just that profile, it's just that Myers Briggs, right? And the reality is, is that there's so much nuance to who we evolve into. You guys are completely different people than you were yesterday. Never mind three years ago. You've, you're evolving, right? You're transforming. So one of the things that can sometimes also be helpful in looking at the Enneagram language is looking at it and saying, based on your lifetime of lived experiences. So for instance, when you mentioned just a second ago, Cal, you're like, that's just the way I am, right? So based on your lifetime of lived experiences, your experience as a human being in your brain has said, this orientation of what's high and what's low gives you the highest degree and highest probability of survival. The challenge is that's built in our adolescence and what existed for us when we were eight or 10 or 12, which is built into our subconscious psyche. It's called interpersonal neurobiology, internal family systems, a lot of neuropsych. That may have been really relevant when you're having a lot of conflict with your primary care providers when you were 10, but it's not the same conversation when you go to your spouse and go, I just had a revelation that I may not be the best version of what you need today. Right, the triggers are different. So for instance, for you, Kyle, with eight, three, and seven, eight is motivated by being able to disrupt things, by changing things, by being a driver, by being able to lead, by being able to show up and being really energetic, especially physically. It's a very key point of extroversion. Three is like, what are you successful in? How, what are you producing outside of yourself that allows somebody to measure you and go, I don't find you wanting, right? And then the seven is saying, I can be enthusiastic at the same time. So in your lifetime growing up, what is your relative relationship? Being? I need you to succeed. I need you to be excited and extroverted when you do that. I need you to present a fist a fist external image that people are attracted to. And I need you to do it in a way that doesn't have you following anybody you're always leaving. Like that language, what was built into your experience growing up that said that's the way that you develop into a successful person. And then as you become healthier, And you become more aware of how, what your needs are in a relationship. And as a parent and as a spouse, you go, that may have been what I need to satisfy the relationship dynamics of what I had growing up, but they're no longer needed now. So, majority of the work with the Enneagram is going, I'm inclined to this, I'm biased to this. This used to be my truth, but it may not be anymore. So, how do I become a healthier version if those aren't the dependencies that I have in my current relationships, but they may have been? If that makes
0: sense. Yeah. I love it. When I first did the the ready test, I, I, I didn't read the instructions. Not I did it like six weeks ago and I didn't read the instructions all the way through. And I was kept oscillating between what happens like when I'm unconscious and just act. And what do I really want to be when I'm fully integrated and came up with an, an odd number didn't really make sense for me. Um, yeah. so I could see w- w- when I'm integrated, I would say when I've used that restraint, And that's when you were talking about that for her has Peyton has very much been the break to the point where it's doesn't feel good. A lot of the times it's like, whoa, you're like, I see this thing so clearly and that's my mindset. And she's like, no, wait. And and I, I'm prone to being impulsive and, and, and these other ways that I can show up. But, um, so it's very interesting We when, when, when I think that's the role you've really taken on in our relationship has done. And I guess for me, the same has been be like, let's, let's, let's move. Let's do this. But one of the things you said that, is something that I wrestled with when we were really struggling and, and I just got the sense. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I just want to stop hurting her. I, I don't. Didn't get it, and um, I think the analogy of having the foot on the gas the whole time and just missing everything, all the clues, but having no idea that it was just like I need to slow down and tune in. And so, anyway, like that came to mind. It was like I, I was just at at a loss. Like I don't know what to do because I love her, but I don't. You know, I don't know what to do.
1: Yeah. yeah. It goes much deeper yeah. than I'm sure, but. For sure. You know, and and, and one, I appreciate you sharing that because, I mean, that's uh, that's really the crux of where relationships either succeed or they don't. And I love the title of the podcast that you guys had for that. You know, new marriage, same partner. It's like, if, if you repeat the process that got you into the space where you had that revelation, then you're just going to reproduce the same information. It's the same experience. But to go, I think there's really, incredible resource and opportunity but there's got to be a major course correction well from one of the things that I would point out in kind of just looking at your guys top three numbers of where that's a classic example is eight is really comfortable with tension it's really comfortable with change it's really comfortable with the the energy level going all the way through the roof like you probably couldn't get more energetic than you're comfortable with in, in a lot of ways it's something that you're familiar with Mm-hmm. Um, the three is saying look we're going to make a goal we're going to succeed we're going to drive through it we're going to make this work right it's it's very very goal oriented very success driven and then the seven is like we're going to have a lot of fun while we're doing that but it's <laughs> going to be the FOMO piece right like we're going to move in so quick that you don't have to worry about what we just passed if, if, if they didn't stick with it and they didn't survive they weren't meant to be here it's okay we'll work you, mm-hmm. you know and why I say that is when you talk about a really easy way to look at the Enneagram is to look at instead of just your type, look at which intelligence center is highest for you. And it's called gut, head, and heart. So that's combining the gut is eight, nine, and one together. The heart is two, three, and four together. And then the head is five, six, and seven. So you're more inclined to think, feel, or act. So a really, really easy way to hyper-distill what I'm talking about for you is out of the all of the information that comes up in your test, you're statistically biased towards the gut, which is a reaction. It's to go. I'm just impulsive. Boom, right? What was Cal thinking? Wasn't thinking, just just, act, just moved. And then in retrospect, going back and going, okay, what happened? Right? Shoot first, ask questions second. Yes. I got an idea. I got an idea. I got an, I got an idea. But for Peyton, she's highest by a lot in her heart triad. Like those three numbers combined two, three, and four. So if she walks into a conversation, regardless of the context, there's a high probability she's going to have a feeling about it, a relational connection, an emotional connection first, and then she's going to think about it. But for her to just impulsively react without having the chance to go, what am I feeling and what do I understand about that feeling? The order of events is feel first, think about it second, and then if you have time, act on it. Where that becomes really interesting is in the relationship, example that you just gave. Twos are allergic to sharing with somebody where they're hurting Because they're there to be a caretaker, not to be receiving care. That would be like being a waiter and sitting at the table and asking the person that you're with to serve you, to feed you. It's wholly counterintuitive. Mm. So to sit down and share with somebody where you're hurting, not only does it feel foreign, it also feels inappropriate. And then on top of that, the reality is, especially if you're married or you're in partnership with somebody who's very, very quick to move, oftentimes somebody who's high in a two energy will restrain themselves from sharing the complexity of what's happening because they don't feel like they're going to be able to get the time and the connection and the presence of the person that they're communicating with to fully unpack the global relevance of what they're experiencing. Like to share with you the full comprehensive nature of what I'm experiencing would require enough belief for you to stay present long enough for me to properly unpack it and you stay present to care long enough to actually see the whole thing. Is how can you properly fix it if you don't properly understand it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's part of that challenge. And then when you look at seven and nine for Peyton, one, hard to share what you need as a two. Very inclined to still say, I'm okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> I'm dying on the inside, but all my friends all- good. Yeah. How you doing? Doing just good. Last a blessing, Hi. right? It's like, it's one of those things where it's just not, it's, it's, you just have to go, how am I supposed to in a moment properly help you understand how much I'm hurting? And then when you add in that nine, the nine is saying, I just at all costs want to just feel a little bit of peace, anything for anything for a quiet space internally. So when you have somebody who's high in eight, eight, three, seven, is coming in like, a, you know, just a freight train and doesn't slow down long enough to understand the pain, the two will sacrifice themselves on the altar of whatever the experience is going to be because they just want to at least achieve some degree of peace. Because the conflict that it would take to have an extended conversation to properly unpack your pain feels more, more difficult than to just simply move forward in the next exciting adventure or whatever the case may be. So I think what you're talking about in that example is a really great way of saying, okay, if you only look at your top numbers, like your scores came back and you're actually highest in, for Cal, for you're highest in eight and three, then you're not having a conversation around what is, what is driving so much of this energy is all three of those things together. And then for, for Peyton saying, look, I want to have a conversation with you, but we have to slow down long enough in the nine space that I live in to actually be able to get you present long enough to go, this is where I'm wrestling with stuff. And the challenge for both of you that I'm sure you've seen over the last 20 years is seven energy is kind of allergic to talking about their pain. Because if you're talking about your pain, you're not having a good time. And sevens are about having a good time. They're about going, what's the next thing that we're going to move into? So you can both, in diff- for different motivations, elope And abdicate the responsibility of really going into deep, hard conversations, because that's a lot more fatiguing. You have a five-minute hard, honest conversation. It will cost you more fuel than it would to spend a week going all over the world adventuring with each other, right?
2: I feel like you just explained our struggle in communicating in our marriage. And um, so beautifully. Um, Because... That's exactly, I felt like you spoke from my heart. And then it's exactly what happens is I don't communicate. And then I would say that you get frustrated because I haven't communicated how I felt, you know. And then one day when I'm finally brave enough to communicate, I have, you know, my laundry list. And I'm like, and then, and then, and then. And it's like, I'm finally able to um speak it and share it um and then you know cal would be like well why didn't you just tell me that like why have you waited so long to just share that with me and i think that's that's been an example in our relationship for many many years would you agree
0: yeah but you've also done a much Better job of actually communicating that. Stuff. Like I, my I, I, hats off to Peyton because she's, and I've known it's taken courage. I just know that when she's come, it's because she is hurting, and it's not easy, and so it does get my attention. Now that said, if things aren't necessarily going great between us, I'm not necessarily slowing down.
2: But I also I, think it, it 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 takes me getting to a breaking point to be able to have the conversation.
1: Right, right. And this is where I think, you know, when whenever we look at it, I, I think one of the things that unfortunately for all of us as human beings that we're given a disservice on, especially in contemporary cultures, we're all given such great perspective on how to be physically fit, like how to do an exercise for our body. But most of us are not really given a lot of tools on how to exercise relationally or exercise mentally and emotionally to build stamina, right? Because what you're talking about is a conversation around resilience. Like how quickly can you shift gears and realize it's not going to kill you, right? So for you to step in and go, I'm going to hit the gas specifically on sharing where I'm hurting on this one thing to at least give myself the opportunity to not go for a high rep workout on sharing the 40 things that I'm currently wrestling with. But let me do a high weight and just share this one heavy thing that I'm carrying with. I just want to engage that and just get outside of my comfort zone to go, I mean, this is really hard for me. Can you slow down just long enough to give me 10 minutes to just unpack this? I don't need an answer. I just need you to be present with it. Because when that builds resilience and stamina, it doesn't require Cal to be in a situation to go, okay, so you're going gonna to need me to slow down and be completely disconnected from resolving this, fixing this, supporting you in it, coming up with a new plan, being connected, acknowledging where I'm at, seeing that there's something that's not right. And by the end of the conversation, you know, damn it, we, we're succeeding. Like everything, like to walk out (laughs) of a conversation, to walk out of a conversation and go, that's not fixed and that's okay. Or she's still hurting and it's not necessarily something that I need to fix or she's hurting and it is my fault, but that's okay too. Or she's hurting and it's her fault fault, and that's okay too. What I say with that is in these spaces, the way the brain has worked that can be helpful for context for this, for folks who are listening and kind of why I talk about this is when you talk about motivation, 100% of what the brain does on a daily basis is survivalist. It's saying, is this going to give me a higher probability of surviving? And then is it going to move me into a higher degree of safety? And then is it going to move me into a space where I feel more comfortable, right? So survive, then safe, then comfort or gratification. So when you're inclined to a particular space, anything that interferes with that space is going to feel like a trigger. It's going to... Feel feel like it's really so for instance with with Peyton if anybody interferes with your space of feeling valued and feeling affirmed or feeling seen feeling cared for feeling relationally connected if somebody interferes with that or intervenes with that it'll trigger you really quick but for Cal if somebody interferes with your ability to actually do something that you're trying to accomplish like somebody creates a traffic jam in your experience as a human being they create a blockade and and they will one they don't even recognize that they're oblivious to it but two, they do it intentionally as a point of conflict and they try to slow you down and impede your progress. That's going to be like, I'm not, I don't need you to be my brake pedal. Right. so what does it create in terms of somebody saying, like, for instance, somebody introduces language around where you're not succeeding and how you're not doing well. Knowing from the way that we're wired as a human being that if, if Peyton steps in and goes, I don't feel seen and I don't feel heard, your brain is going to go, And immediately being triggered by that and recognizing she's not saying I'm a failure. She's saying she doesn't feel heard. She doesn't feel seen. And then for Kyle to say, this is really, really difficult for me to sit in this conversation for five minutes because I don't, I haven't had the history. I didn't have that model for me growing up. I don't know what that looks like. So when somebody shares this is difficult, that doesn't mean that you're difficult, right? Because we're naturally inclined as human beings to personalize things. Mm -hmm. So if we come into all these conversations, and and the reason I love the Enneagram around this is, especially with the brain science, is the faster that we're able to recognize what triggers us, and then we're able to recognize that almost every conversation, good, bad, or indifferent, is going to trigger something in us instinctively, the sooner that we move that into a conscious level and we become aware of it, the better we're able to navigate it because we move from autopilot to pilot. You have to understand 95 to 97% of what happens to us as a human being on a daily basis is subconscious. 95 to 97. So the sooner you recognize, do I feel safe? Nope. Why don't I feel safe? Do I feel triggered? Yep. Why do I feel triggered? Does this feel life-threatening? For sure. Is it life-threatening? No. But as soon as somebody steps in from a leadership position and goes, this feels like you're dying, but you're not, then all of a sudden the whole strategy changes and we end up getting into conscious conversations where you're talking about how did I do the introspective work? How did I do the inner work? How did I develop a practice that in my 30s, if somebody had said, I go on vacation and I sit and I meditate and that feels great. Like, would the 30, of you, 30 year old version of you been like, that makes sense? Or would it have laughed at you? <laughs> right? I would have been partying hard. Right. So it's one of those things where you're looking at it and going, probably the easiest way that I would distill this in terms of personal work and also the nature of brain development is the idea of neuroplasticity is that we can change, that we're not fixed, that we're capable. It's like open source software. You can get an, up, an upgrade to your operating system and change everything. But the reality is, if you don't have any awareness of what you need to change, everything stays the same because your brain's really good at doing whatever keeps you alive. Well, if you're in your 30s, being in a space where you're partying nonstop because that's gratifying, and then you get into your 40s and you're like, I'm a parent and a spouse and I want to figure out how to shift gears. A really easy way to think through it is if. If it's hard, it's helpful. If it's harmful, it's not. So if you're doing some sort of shift and it does not feel difficult, it's probably not going to do anything for you because it's like a workout. No good workout. No workout is a good workout that doesn't break a sweat and make you a little bit sore. right? So when you're looking at these spaces and going, man, this this feels really, really hard to slow down and have a conversation where my spouse is sharing with me where I've missed it. That doesn't mean it's life ending. It just means it's uncomfortable. It's a very different space because your brain is asking, "Am I going to survive this?" Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, right? And that's why most, most—if we're honest—most marriages are ending because they're like, "I can't survive this long term." Long term, literally, I can't. Right? It's a survival-based question. It starts and ends with survival. Sorry, that was a little long-winded. No, I, I love I, I context. I love, yeah,
2: and one thing that I've noticed. Uh, Over the past year, is that I am one of those people in his life who does come in as a roadblock. I've noticed that I come in and pump the brakes, sometimes the emergency brake, and but I don't want to be that person in his life. I don't want to be a roadblock, Um, but I find myself doing that sometimes, and um, I've also noticed that. So a few things came up for me. So I'm that person who is the roadblock and I don't necessarily want to be in our relationship to, um, I judge myself based on his mode of action. Like, Oh my, how does he do it? You know, if I could be him for one day, I would have probably five of my like things I want to accomplish in my life done. Like, seriously, can I just like be you one day? Because. And, and so then I'm like, Oh my God, I suck. Like, how am I going to fit it? Like how, you know, and then I'm exhausted just watching him or being in his space, like energetically exhausted.
0: And I feel that energy by the way. It's like, I'm not like attractive right now is even though like I'm on mission, it's like,
2: like, look, I just did all these things. And I'm like, yeah, it's hard. It's like a roll. It's like, I was, I like you're on a roller coaster and We just got done and he's like, that was awesome. And I'm like, I'm exhausted. And so in a relationship, in me identifying these few things that I feel shows up in our relationship as a challenge, any thoughts on that? Sometimes she slashes
0: the tires too, just to make sure (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going anywhere.
2: That's great. She's not put
1: her boot on yet. Yeah, there's legitimately a boot on the car. It's like Cal's <laughs> gone to the airport and he's like, My none of my credit cards Do you have any idea what yeah? I think it's a fraud thing. I'm not sure what that is. i I called I called them and they said that you canceled all of my cards.
2: And I do it very um, I would say like um I don't know, like maybe in a manipulative, manipulative way. Into the sure.
1: Be sure everyone hears that now. Uh Well, the, the timing was good that he was on. He was being honest that it was. She's like, I'm a d- d-. like, you can speak into the mic this
0: one time. No, it's okay. It's actually, I got a good sound you know, the guy.
1: Funny, the funny thing is, uh, it's like my mom is British and she was born in born in England, but raised in, in Zimbabwe. Rhodesia went before it's called Zimbabwe, and she has this really really funny thing that when she curses, um, she does it quieter as if it's going to be less relevant. It's less less bad. It's like it's like if you whisper a curse it's not as simple right she's, it's really cute it's really it's 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 very endearing um because no matter what happens she just her body language changes and she's like <laughs> um but that just happened where it's like sometimes you know it's like it happened um i would say isn't cute.
0: that that would just be i i would say
1: manipula is a hard a mm. tough word i would say it's more just strategy based Right, which I appreciate I appreciate you being willing to, to make a lighthearted version of that because seven energy is best at levity because levity neuters pain. Mm-hmm. But the reality is what Peyton just shared is actually, one, transparently painful because she knows that she's got the capacity for manipulation. Mm-hmm. And two, to answer your question, one of the things that's really fascinating, and this is a harder thing to learn, and maybe if you guys go back and you watch it on the video, But for people who are high in 837 energy, they're not used to eye contact for an extended period of time because they're so quickly moving, right? They're kinetic. Mm -hmm. But if somebody looks at you for an extended period of time while you were sharing that example of where you feel like that you sometimes can be the roadblock or be the e break or be those things, there were four separate times where your your facial expression changed because your emotionality peaked in all four of those spaces. So as your facial tone changes, there's a degree of disappointment about being that because you don't want to be that. Like you guys have such an endearing space where you you can tell that you want to support each other and you want to see each other succeed. So it's like, how do I find the balance in sharing where I'm hurting, but it also not being a hindrance or a burden? Because again, you got to realize two energy will automatically feel like they are an encumbrance, like they're a burden, like they don't want to be the sick person in the middle of a well conversation. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to be flawed. They don't want to be. Uh, uh, they don't want to be a hindrance to somebody's happiness, right? So you have to weigh and measure all of those times. And this is something where you talk about, like, how do you find a balance with that? That if you're married to somebody who's high in two energy, especially for you, Cal, if you're high in those gas pedal spaces, if a two energy starts to share where they're hurting and it doesn't sound needy and it doesn't sound manipulative, it sounds honest. You should literally put pause on everything else in your life and center to that because the amount of work that it takes for two energy to get to the point where they're willing to actually verbalize where they're hurting they've already gone through hours if not days if not weeks of prep to just get to that point and it's kind of like being in the middle of a therapy session you're just unloading where you're really hurting and then all of a sudden somebody's phone rings and the moment's gone to get back into that space to re-engineer what it takes to go i just don't feel safe i don't feel good like that, because what ends up happening to Peyton's point, if a two energy doesn't feel like they're going to land in a safe space to share with you where they're hurting, they'll start to manipulate the environment enough for you to see how much they're hurting. And they'll do kind of a cry wolf perspective, or they'll do a lot of passive regressive techniques, right? Well, they'll start to go, oh, well, you know, a lot of things happened today. Did you see that? Did you see all those things? Are you affirming me? Or are you appreciating me? Do you see me? what ends up happening is you move into a passive aggressive manipulative space to say, and I'm going to do all these subtle kind of backhanded compliment things because I'm trying to get your attention, but I don't feel safe enough to bring it to the transparent, hey, I need you for a minute. So when you're talking about being a brake pedal, and being an e-brake, a really, I think one of the things that's sometimes helpful to think about for that, Peyton, is if you're in a really strong 2-7 space, telling somebody that you need them And what you need is already going to be something that you're allergic to. Your face just did it again, right? With your eyes and your mouth. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you automatically get triggered because the idea of saying I need you and I also have a need feels so vulnerable, Mm -hmm. right? And at the same time, seven energy is allergic to pain. It doesn't want to be vulnerable. So for a two seven to be vulnerable about yourself, you're allergic to that because everything in your history has told you that's not the best way to handle Feeling safe. Because I don't know if you guys know, but the root word of vulnerability is vulnera. And vulnera in Latin means to be woundable, right? So if you're doing something vulnerable, you're literally laying on your back, showing your belly to somebody and going, I feel super, super woundable. Please don't hurt me. Please don't step on me. Please don't injure me. So for somebody high in two seven energy to go, I'm sitting with my pain. Can you sit with it? And can you recognize it's really hard for me to tell you what I need? And then that person just be present with it. That's really hard for somebody to do who's high in two and seven. But then as soon as somebody like Cal is high in eight, three and seven, it's hard for you to sit with pain as a seven. You're like, you know what? It's kind of like my dad used to joke. If your hand hurts, just pass me a hammer. I'll hit a toe. Take your mind right <laughs> off. My dad was also a special forces guy in the Rhodesian military for a long time. So he's pretty intense. He spoke <laughs> like 13 languages. And, and it, was, it was just, he was like, no, I actually could hurt you in other ways and take your mind right off of it. And he totally meant it. But what I mean by that is, if Peyton's, she's pulling the e-brake. Remember that as soon as that e-brake is pulled and it slams the brakes on your experience for you, Cal, your brain is automatically, as a defense strategy, going to be triggered because you're massively changed. So now all of a sudden, your spouse becomes the threat, your partner becomes the threat, and very quickly, consciously moving into that higher part of your brain that you've worked on for the last decade, and going, what is, what am I aware of, of going, my my spouse and my partner is not enemy they're not a threat they just pulled the e-brake why did they pull the e like ask a clarifying question and then as quickly as possible move into a space where it's like okay how do I help triage like how do I sit with the pain what's your goal not my goal and how do I help work through this conflict strategy with you there's one thing that's interesting where you're polarized is you're super high in eight cal and Peyton is super low in eight so that difficulty of dealing with that conflict and bringing the conflict up and manufacturing the conflict for Peyton is going to feel so foreign to be like, I'm going to introduce conflict in this space. So her idea of conflict resolution is just not introducing conflict. Mm. So let's just make sure that- Yeah, meetings, I was going
2: to ask you to clarify I mean, what eight is.
1: Yeah, so eight is, eight is a space that says, I'm, I've got the natural capacity for disruption or change or tension. They're motivated- uh, by being able to see things change and to to grow, right? And the, the natural gift is growth. So if you think about growing a muscle, you can't grow a muscle without actually tearing the muscle and helping it to grow. You get little tiny tears in the muscle and you develop muscle mass. So growth intrinsically has a lot of pain involved. Growth has a lot of tension and a lot of being stretched. Well, for Cal, if you look from a mental, emotional standpoint and even your own physique, you've got a capacity to go, the exercise is worth the effort, right? I have a history of experience if I look through my upbringing going, did I have significant change? Did I have conflict? Did I have assertiveness? Did I have aggressiveness? Did I have spaces growing up that felt like they were conflict-oriented or did I have a lot of intensity and change and inconsistency? Right? Did I have those growing up? And in order for me to survive, I had to learn how to speak that language. So Cal learned how to speak the language of disruption and change, constant change. For you, For whatever reason, that didn't become a dialect that rose to the surface. So when it shows up and somebody starts speaking that dialect of intensity and especially conflict that comes with aggression or comes with argument or it comes with challenge and it's not healthy and it doesn't feel safe, you're going to start to retreat, not advance. So when a two tries to share with somebody who's high in eight that they don't feel safe or they don't feel needed, they know they're going to be introducing something that may be met with intensity and that may not feel safe. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Speaks to me that's specific to you guys. I don't know if, it, if that resonates with
0: you, Cal, but me time, me time. it's like, I am always trying. You can imagine as I've gone on this bit of a personal journey over these last three years, I have tried a bunch of shit and I've gotten excited about a lot of things because I see the potential and it's new and it's different and it's this and it's that. And largely in the beginning, I always met with, um, passivity and just like not, and I didn't have a great way of articulating because I, in this, this, I just went without really knowing. I just felt like a calling to these different things, whether it was plant medicines or trying this or doing that. And it was any number of things. I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. Like it, it sounds like, you know, there would be something in there for me to, you know, to change my perspective or to give me more opportunities for growth, whatever it is. And for a long time, she kind of, I didn't feel supported in it. So that was hard because I felt on an Island and I'm trying these things and I'm excited about it and I'm learning stuff. And I didn't know how to share that because I didn't feel like I had a captive audience. Um, oh,
2: see, that's interesting because I would feel like you've tried many things throughout a relationship. And I was like, number one cheerleader. And I'd be like, okay, this is what we're doing now. Fluff the pom poms. Let's go. So that's I'd say more on the,
0: the, the personal exploration. Um, yeah. Just as I would you like know,
2: more recently, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Within
0: of? the last couple of years. But I think, but what I would say is in the last six months you have been like open. I would, I would, I would say you've been open-minded and curious. You've been more curious rather than, you know, what is it this time?
2: Well, I think, I think I, for, that was
0: the energy I would get. For sure. What is it now?
2: But what I, I think I've realized, I think what I've realized. This is
0: what we're doing now is not a cheerleader to me. No. This is like a little Okay, but interesting.
2: Okay, that's great that you said that. But I also have realized. You son of a bitch. <laughs> <yeah>, we're, <laughs> we're doing the work. <laughs> right. That's why we're here. Absolutely. Um, this is real time, this folks. This is. Come on
0: now. <laughs> keeping
2: it real. Um, Is I realized what I was feeling is his exploration was a threat for me. And so that tapped into that fear of like, Oh, okay. So now is he going to leave me? Sure. And so that's what I had realized this over the past few years. It was like, how can I best support him so that, we're in this great relationship and he doesn't leave me. And I didn't realize that a lot of the decisions and support I was giving was more fear-based in certain scenarios. And I think a lot with this new exploration, because there were some big changes, it felt as a threat.
0: I felt it was, yeah. it was tolerated, not supported.
2: Mm. That, that's fair.
0: Yeah. So the energy, the words didn't land for
2: me. And I tried, I didn't, it's not that I didn't want to be supported. I think, you know, I would try to talk myself into being supportive, which is probably why it felt not aligned because I was trying to get myself to a point of being supportive, but what my, what I was feeling was scared.
1: Sure. No, and what you guys are communicating is, you know, it's really fascinating how the the language for each of you is so personal and so context driven, right? One of the phrases that I use with um, patients and families and when I'm teaching on this space is when fear goes up, cognition goes down. So the way the brain works is cognition is both thinking and feeling. So when you get into a survival based space or you don't feel safe, as the stress or the in, in a lot of people go, well, I don't deal with fear. Great. That's not true, but I'll, I'll let's go with it. Um, I don't have stress. That's great. Okay, it's not true, but I'll go with it. You can use the term inputs, okay? When your body is dealing with a stress, imagine that you're a restaurant that has too many tickets coming in, okay? You've overbooked the restaurant and you're making food in the background. You could be the happiest person in the planet making that food, but you've got too many tickets and at some point you're going to run out of resources. So as that goes up, once you eventually run out of resources and your brain deals with fatigue, when fear goes up, stress or workload goes up, eventually you'll have a law of diminishing returns and cognition goes down. The reason I say that is as you guys are even not navigating that conversation, oftentimes what happens for the brain is it wants somebody else to understand your context. And a lot of the times we can't even remember our own context because we were dealing with fear and stress in that space. So a really helpful thing that can sometimes shift when you're talking about the spaces that you're in is to go with the concept, right? Because conceptually, what Peyton's saying in that space was, I felt scared. I thought you might leave. I thought I might get abandoned. I don't know if you were loyal. I wasn't sure if everything was going to end up right. Mm-hmm. right. And then Cal saying, I didn't feel like there was peace in that space. I didn't feel like you were with me in that. It didn't feel like I had a captive audience. I don't feel like I was heard. It felt like there was, some passive aggressiveness to it. It felt like the language didn't feel safe. Realistically, in both of those situations, you're talking about for some reason, relative to your own lived experience, you didn't feel safe conceptually. Mm -hmm. Then you go, okay, well, what about that didn't feel safe? Case in point, to connect you guys back to the Enneagram and the dialogue, your bottom numbers, and this is a big shift in Enneagram language, which you can tell your friend, Mary Lou, this is one of my biggest hearts around this, okay? Because I'm so tired of people saying, what number are you? You're not a number. You're a human who has the capacity for all of this stuff. All nine numbers are actively working in you. Knowing your highest numbers knows what you're actively working towards or pursuing them because the more they exist on a daily basis, the more you feel safe. But if somebody introduces your bottom numbers, they will trigger you the fastest. And if you look at the example that you guys just gave, somebody in that space being each other had the potential of introducing potentially your bottom numbers in an unhealthy way. So for instance, you Peyton, your bottom three numbers are eight, six, and one. Eight is conflict. If it's unhealthy, specifically relational conflict, because you're high in a relational space feeling. Six is the idea of loyalty and commitment and integrity. And then one is the idea of things being fixed and stable and right. So if Cal is going on an adventure and your two is warring and your seven is warring and your nine is warring. You're saying, I want to celebrate you. I want to tell you to go for it. I want to just do whatever creates a modicum of peace in our relationship, because that's what I know. At least I've got some probability of achieving. But what you're actually doing is moving out of a space that's triggered that says, this is going to end up being a stick of dynamite in our relationship. I'm going to lose the commitment in the relationship because you might leave. That's the six, that's the loyalty. And then something's going to end up broken as a result of this. And I didn't do enough to fix it. Mm-hmm. So the top numbers are trying to reconcile the fear of the bottom numbers. They're collectively in relationship with each other. Right. Does that make sense? It does. So it's saying that you're trying to look at it and somebody would normally say, well, you know what it is? You're, you're being, you're, you're just not working through reconciling your neediness as a two. But one, that's really patronizing. and makes me want to start just cursing at somebody. Like Don't <laughs> trivialize the human experience of being in a dynamic with a person for two decades and trying to comprehensively understand what it is that you're wrestling with as a human. That's that's not fair. But when you look at it and go, okay, what's the whole narrative here? What's the biggest, I don't feel safe. Is it because he interfered with your ability to be appreciated long enough for him to stay at home with you, that you're the adventure that can be pursued in that space and you guys can be excited without having to elope somewhere else outside of your zip code? Or is it that, the idea of a lost relationship and abandonment came in and that triggers history for you? Or is it that something's going to end up broken and you're trying your best just to fix it and to heal it? Like there's different spaces, right? Sure. But then if you look at cow, I'm trying to break those, shit. Yeah. You're, that's exactly it. The eight is like, don't worry if it's supposed to survive, it'll survive. Yes. Right? Let's let's, you know what? I got an idea that dude who jumped out of the airplane without a parachute and was the first guy to jump out of an airplane and do a skydive without a parachute. That's me and my, in general. We've figured out. Get a net big enough, it doesn't matter how long the free fall is, I'll be fine. If I'm not, well, you know, we went out on a high note, okay? it's like That's, that's understandable. So if you look at those spaces, I think one way to really distill it, because for the sake of time, I don't want to fatigue your audience, um, but what you guys talked about in that space, this is where we come back to the gas cruising rate, the relative relationship to heart rate. One of the fascinating things in science now is heart rate variability right? Like how much is healthy for you? For Cal, hitting the gas pedal and having your heart rate spike and having those swings and having that high, high heart rate feels life-giving. So to slow down, to find an equilibrium, or even to lower your heart rate for an extended period of time is going to take work. That's why it's taken so much mindfulness, so much meditation, so much experiences with what you've gone through, because it's taken an active, intentional, concerted effort to get your heart rate to stay low for a longer period of time because it wasn't natural. So when you're in a space saying, Hey, I got a new idea and Peyton comes in and goes, not yet. It slams a brake on the part of your brain that goes, so does my heart rate have to go down? Cause I don't want my heart rate to go down. I feel good when my heart rate is up. And then Peyton, Peyton's in a situation going, I'm not really inclined for my heart rate to be at 90 all day. It doesn't feel good for me. Like I'm okay with it every once in a while, but consistently being up, that's not what I'm here for. I prefer a sense of equilibrium or rest, or at least something that feels consistent, where if it happens, it just doesn't happen for an extended period of time. So those sort of spaces are kind of an easy way to look at it and go, man, I just really like being a gas pedal. Why is it so hard for me not to be that? No matter how well practiced I am, I'm just not inclined to it. And that's okay, but it's it's important for me to be aware of it. And for Peyton to go, I'm not inclined to be a gas pedal. I don't want to burn out. I don't want to burn through all of our fuel. In fact, I'm trying to make sure that we have enough resources to survive the next 10 or 20 years. If we go too fast, we may not. So when she reins it in, it's a safety mechanism. When you speed it up, it's a safety mechanism. So being able to step back and go, is that true? Is it going to eat me if I don't take the next trip? Is it going to kill me if I don't take the next trip? Is it going to be life-threatening? Or am I reconciling with bigger conversations around why do I feel the need to so consistently drive and to break stuff? And why do I feel the need so consistently to say things have to slow down for me to feel safe and you have to be present in order for me to feel safe? Is that true? And if it is, having an honest conversation about that being true is very different than having a a confused conversation around what feels true when you're fearful. Because when fear goes up, cognition goes down. Does that make sense?
2: Beautiful.
1: I know we just went through a lot and for anybody who's stuck with us, congratulations. (laughs) You have built some stamina. Well done. Well
2: and so, I really okay. appreciate Dr. Jerome that you you know it's very easy to kind of celebrate these you know the attributes of um of your parts of the enneagram but I really I'm going to use appreciated again yes. <laughs> I really appreciated no, no, no. how you talked about the parts are the reasons maybe why I would be triggered by certain things because I think often when we do these personality trait type tests, we only look at the ones that we would align more positively or ones that more support our perception of self as opposed to the ones that challenge our perception of self. And I think it's so important to look at all of that to understand your why and how we can grow in having that awareness. And so I think that was so powerful and important that you discuss that as well.
1: Thank, Thank you. you. And I, pre- I think that's, you know, for me, the biggest thing to, to wrap up with what you're saying, Cal and Ty, and what you just mentioned, Peyton. And I, I again, I, I specialize in complex unresolved cases. People who come in here have seen an average of two dozen specialists, been a hundred to 150 grand. They're really hurting. And the reality is, is that plenty of people have thrown something at them that goes, well, this is the most likely thing to work because you've got as a resource. And oftentimes nobody's really looking at that nuanced piece where they're hemorrhaging resources and just plugging the hole in a boat right I d- sometimes the most helpful thing you can do is go where's a where's a really viable space that we can shore things up where's a really great opportunity to not reinforce a strength but alone to do that but go through a SWOT analysis like do the basics of strengths weaknesses opportunities and threats a really comprehensive we've done it in all of these business spaces that we've lived in for the last thirty years like, it's really important to do a both and then some. Leverage your strengths. That's awesome. Those are great resources. Celebrate that. Don't forget there's weaknesses, there's opportunities, and there's legitimately threats. Sure. So to answer your question, um, Cal, I think one of the things that can be helpful for folks, two simple recommendations. One is when you take the ready test, um, which is RHETI. I, I, I don't get anything from them. I'm not affiliated. I, I absolutely love the work that Russ Hudson does, which is is where the Enneagram Institute is based. I think it's the most reliable when you look at it through this whole identity profile. Okay, But when you take the ready, go to the EnneagramInstitute.com. And for your top three numbers, especially any number that's over 20, like for you, Peyton, it's two and seven. For you, Cal, it's three, eight, eight, three, and seven. Your top three numbers, but especially any that's over 20, Go to the Enneagram Institute, look at the type descriptions, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and read the section that says personal growth recommendations. You don't have to understand everything that I've said. You don't have to understand neuroscience, ask to break the cruise. Just go for the easy, low-hanging fruit, cherry-pick the personal growth recommendation that jumps out to you because every single person that I know that takes their top three numbers and reads those personal growth recommendations something will jump out on that page that is so obvious and so evident that it's not new information. It's a reminder that's really revelational because like, you know what? I'm in the space where that finally resonates. It finally sinks in. But you can get that off the personal growth recommendation. The other simple thing is, is I created a whole series of YouTube videos for free during coronavirus because a lot of people are like, we just don't have funds to even buy anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm allergic to self-promotion, so I don't tell a lot of people like, where to find myself? Well, we're gonna promote <laughs> your yeah, ass, you. So, yeah, you so you don't have to worry about yeah, yourself. So yeah, yeah, I'll leave that to I'll leave that to my brothers who are high in yep. seven eight, and the you guys cast. are both high in yes. seven eight. Oh, you better get I, some staff. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I, I learned a long time ago. It's it's. I'm just gonna love on people. I'm gonna appreciate them because I'm high too. And then if they want to share it, because I'm a hundred percent referral practice with a ten week wait list. It's like I don't need to promote anything. If you guys love it, you'll do it. But one of the things that's helpful is to have a longer conversation where it's slowed down and it's not as accelerated as the podcast and it's not as long. So if you go to YouTube and you just Google my name or not Google, just look in YouTube, Dr. Jerome Libba, L-U-B-B-E, there's a YouTube page that has about 20 different videos that go over each type in terms of what's called high and low expressions. So one that I would actually watch for you guys together as an example is Cal's really high in eight and then Peyton's lower in eight. So if you watch just the eight video, it'll say this is how you show up if it's high and this is actually how it's allergic for you if you're low. And then you can have the same video be contextual for both of you, right? Mm-hmm. But those videos are all free on YouTube and they help to explain things a little bit better. Um, so if you're high in a number, it'll give you context. If you're low in a number, it'll give you context as well. And then you look at the high numbers and say, what are some personal growth recommendations that are already really well framed out for me? Because I understood maybe gas break and cruise, but the rest of it, he lost me. Um, then those can be some helpful on-ramps to go. And it, there's, there's so much beauty and so much complexity to the way that the human being is made um, that I would just give yourself an on-ramp that's relative to your highest numbers and, and then go from there.
0: Amazing. And we'll, we'll link to all this mm-hmm. in the show notes. So you'll have that and we'll link to your book. Uh, where can people find you in particular?
1: Yeah, yeah. easiest way is drjerome.com, which is D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E. Um, it shows three different places. One is my clinic site. The other one is the whole identity, which is a brain-based Enneagram. Then I have a whole another world um, called Thrive Neurotheology, which is the intersection between spirituality that's not faith-specific, but spirituality and neuroscience. So that landing page, Dr. Drum, will take you to all of those different websites.
0: Awesome. And then uh, for those of you who uh, know that I'm doing, or maybe you don't know, but I'm doing this, The Unlearned Experience, which is an intentional brotherhood, Dr. Jerome is going to be one of our guest experts, uh, early, actually early on in the experience. And so if you are called to this work, Hey, you can reach out to him and get your own work done, mm-hmm. you and your partner, or you can also join us at the next one because we're sold out now, but we'll be running another one, hopefully sometime end of the year, beginning of 2021. And, um, I have to bribe Dr. Jerome to, to come back Great. and run that back with us. But um, I don't know. Pay, do you have any closing thoughts?
2: I, I wanted to give a shout out to my uh, dear friend, Juliana Bootsman of White Box Leadership, who introduced the Enneagram to me a couple of years ago. And just many thanks to you, Dr. Jerome, for your your time and your love and your tenderness today. Um, I so told you you're going to love him. I know you right? do. Hard to,
0: I know he's a doctor, but he's not. He's like spiritually. He's got the whole Thank you. thing. You're gonna love his energy. Man.
1: Thank, Thank you. you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks to
0: to Ty Ward for, for connecting sure. us. ty has been amazing to work with, and uh, yeah, he's taught me. Everybody, a lot about this. everybody
1: you guys work with, sound like some sort of really impressive musician. It's like, what did you say? It was Juliana uh, Juliana? What Bootsman. was your last name? Yeah, Juliana. That's a Bootsman, badass name. Yeah. White, what, what, was, what was she with? White Fox. Uh, w- uh, white Box leadership in Canada. White Box. Yeah. See, I thought it was White Fox. Was Maybe like, she'll change it now. Yeah, white cool. Fox. Yeah. yeah. Juliana Bootman, the lead singer for White Fox. It's like you know, and it's like Ty Ward. You, I just feel like he's holding an acoustic guitar.
2: And Mary Lee, like, huh? just Mary Lee.
1: Yeah, it's not Mary Lou. Mary, Mary Lee. Lee. Yeah, I think Mary Lou was the one from. Um, oh man. The Grinch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> She's and he, oh, and she would not be Grinch energy at all. No, although she would love on that Grinch energy all day long. No, I mean the
1: little girl from the Grinch. Yeah, that's right. that's Mary right. Lou, who
2: something like no, that? I, I don't I even
1: know. Would, sorry, oh. yeah, the whole time, the whole time I've been envisioning the, the little girl from the Grinch. Oh, so that's am so sorry. Cute. I tell Mary Lee, Doctor Mary Lee, <laughs> um, I wholly apologize for having that image in my You said her name I heard the wrong name. So, no. Oh. Well, awesome, no, Doc. great being with you guys. Thank you for the opportunity and, and for the, the folks who are listening and thank you for the, the presence and the, and the space to be with you as well. Got it. We'll yeah.
2: be in touch soon. Thanks, brother.
0: Much love. You've been listening to The Great Unlearned. For more information, please check out the show notes or head on over to thegreatunlearned.com for additional episodes and information regarding events and retreats. If you liked what you heard today, click subscribe and share this with friends that might enjoy our platform. Please leave a five-star rating in iTunes as this really helps us spread our message. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Bunker Cal, and on Facebook as John Callahan. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon.